Hi everybody, welcome. I'm Connor Hogan, Senior Information Governance Manage Manager at BSI, and I'm very glad to be here today with Kausik Guraswamy, the CTO at Menlo. Uh, Kausik, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, Kausik, you've been in information security for nearly 20 years now. Uh, why don't we start off maybe by you telling us uh, how you got to where you are today? Um, so my foray into information security was Right around 2000, 2001, um, I joined a small company called OneSecure, where we built the first uh, inline intrusion prevention device uh, to hit the market. And that was then acquired by another company called NetScreen in a typical Silicon Valley fashion, um, and then acquired once more by Juniper Networks. Um, I was a distinguished engineer um, in Juniper Networks for about a year. And then I left to start my own company called Mu Dynamics. Um, did that for about seven years and it got acquired and post-acquisition um, I decided to come on board to Mendel Security as Chief Technology Officer. What do you think uh, Kausik have been the biggest challenges then for you as a CTO in Menlo um, and as I understand it you you were you joined Menlo quite early on in their in their formation and their their life cycle as an organization so what were the what were the biggest challenges for you as CTO there? Um, so I came on board pretty much from day one with Menlo as an advisor. And then about a year into the company's life, I decided to come on board as a full-time employee um, as a chief technology officer. You know, uh, startups are hard, uh, no matter who you ask, right? I mean, they're exciting, they're fun, but they're also hard. And so early on, the few people that are in the company, you know, five, maybe 10 people, we all get to play very different roles every single day throughout the day. Um, that includes, you know, just hiring, you know, you're doing a little bit of engineering, operations, you're building the product, you're talking to customers, you're talking to analysts, you're just trying to figure out, you know, to really, you start the company with an inkling of an idea uh, where you want to go with it, but you don't quite have the technology just yet. And so a lot of the early stages is really around building the team, building the technology, building the product, making sure that the product is actually solving a problem that the market needs. Um, so that's, that's sort of a generic answer, but it's it's fairly common for every single startup uh, to do all of those things, right? And so my role in early days was a lot of engineering, architecture, hiring, product, et cetera. But as we have grown in the last six, seven years, um, you know, with so many different customers and millions of users using the platform, there's also a natural shift um, in my role. So it's a bit more outbound. Um, more evangelic, you know, just going and evangelizing what we are, who we are, who our customers are. And so there's a little bit of a transition that happens as well. And that's really interesting because I think the, the startup culture, you know, out of Silicon Valley, uh, even translating into Silicon Docs here in Ireland, um, is exactly how you've espoused it there. Everybody wears multiple hats and does different things. But that transition then into a more uh, evangelical role that the CTO normally plays, I mean, that brings its own challenges, right? So, I mean, you know, that, that sort of, that progression, the moving into the, the more traditional role of CTO, what really has changed then, um, and, and how have you dealt with that in the last number of years? Um, yeah, I mean, I play a pretty unique role as a, as a chief, as a CTO. I mean, I, I jokingly say that on one hand, I'm a chief technology officer. On the other hand, I'm chief talking officer. Um, so I, I, I get to do a bit of sort of both, both internal, looking at where the product needs to go from a technology perspective and building prototypes and sort of 
you know, looking forward as to how to continue to be a leader, leadership position in the industry for what we do. But at the same time, I'm also outside helping the sales and marketing teams go and interact with customers and talk to customers and prospects and basically tell them what an amazing product we have and how we're fundamentally changing the security paradigm. And ultimately, I mean, technology organizations and security organizations are in the market to solve technology problems, to solve security problems, but ultimately to sell product and to grow the revenue, grow the customer base, sustain the yeah. organization. So, you know, do those early days, um, do you think uh, in that startup culture play into the favor and, and, and help you in your role now as, as, as you put it, chief talking officer or chief technology officer because of the multiple hats that you did have to wear, you know, solving those problems, uh, espousing what the values of the company are um, and trying to solve issues as they arose, you know, in a reactive manner, as well as trying to get things done. Do you think that has positioned you well now in the role that you have as CTO at Menlo today? Yeah, I, mean, I would say definitely, right? One of the things that attracted me to Menlo, both in the early days and as well as coming on board full time, is having done my own startup before and looked at other security companies and advised other security companies, the three things that sort of struck, you know, so the things that I look for in a company, and I think Menlo had all of them, were time to explain to somebody what we do time to sort of install the product and get customers to using it and then time to value how long before they realize that the investment that they made is actually the right thing for them and menlo uniquely has a very very personal human story which i love telling audiences right um, because most security products are insanely technical and a lot of the communication outbound communication also comes across as very technical and but the menlo uh, solution given what we do and how we do it, it is just so easy to explain and it really sort of makes it makes my job that much easier to explain to people what we do. And that's great because ultimately, I think as a consultant, what I find um, the challenges that my organization that my clients have um, relate mainly to the people, right? The people being the weakest link in security or the weakest link when sure. it comes to privacy and privacy management, etc. So, I mean, that to me as a consultant makes absolute sense, being able to solve the problems that are human and relatable. So, um, I mean, given that Menlo has a particular security product targeted at a particular security problem, I mean, how would you go about advising organizations either as CTO at Menlo right now or given your, your consulting background uh, on the best manner in which to approach the people problem, if I put that in inverted commas? Yeah, so this I think strikes pretty much to the heart of why Menlo I think is unique and interesting, um, which is Security, if you look back over the last 20 years, pretty much since the advent of this thing called cybersecurity, security has always been at crossroads with user experience, right? So the better the security, the worse the user experience. Um, case in point, if you look at some of the governments like Singapore or, or Korea or Japan, um, they've actually taken extreme measures in, in, you know, for the sake of security where the employees in government offices, they have two computers. One computer is for the internet and one computer is for inside. And so these employees have to go to this computer called the dark computer or the kiosk to serve the internet, but they have to come back and work internally. So from a security perspective, it's fantastic because the work computers can never be infected with ransomware or anything like that. But from a user experience and productivity perspective, it's super painful. And this has been the case um, across 
pretty much every single security product, I think, which is the better the security, worse the user experience. So Menlo's sort of unique pr proposition and value that we bring to the table is we're saying with Menlo, you don't have to compromise the two. The, you know, the users can still go and surf the internet in a very, very safe way, but from a security perspective, they will be protected 100%. And that's important. I do find that the the, the trade-offs, you know, security to user experience, privacy to user experience, um, are becoming much more acute in how organizations are solving them today. And at the end of the day, it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. You should still be able to deliver all the user functionality while improving, sustaining, maintaining, and increasing your security posture. Um, I mean, securing sensitive data is always going to be a continuous challenge for any C-suite, whether, you know, it's somebody wearing a CISO hat, uh, the CIO, obviously CTO. I mean, can you give me an example of some of those those challenges that you've experienced um, relating to, I suppose, securing sensitive data and, and the particular trade-offs for end-user um security awareness um, and experience and, and, and particularly how you've managed to overcome them? Yeah, so let me let me start with the, the user experience aspect of it. Um, one of the CISOs is a customer of Menlo. Uh, you know, pre-Menlo, his name is Carl, and all of his employees um, in the company used to call him Don't Click Carl because that's what he used to do. He used to go and tell people, don't go here, don't do this, don't open this, don't open this attachment, don't go to this website, right? I mean, it's, it's basically fear-mongering, and cutting people off access to the Internet is basically how people protect data. Um, when it specifically comes to sensitive data, I think the challenges are data is everywhere and you have a distributed workforce. And so the combination makes it very, very difficult to know what's being shared and how it's being shared. Um, and it, it makes it very difficult. And some of the more common ways of sort of tackling the problem is adopting an information security management system. Um, and typically these ISMS frameworks um, they have sort of a cycle, which is plan, do, check, and act. Um, and it's sort of an iterative process. But the most important part of this framework is to ensuring individual employee is ultimately responsible for, for their own actions. Because the company can provide all of the measures, but ultimately it's the employee, uh, you know, that's essentially interacting with this data and, and putting the data in different places. So these frameworks, I think, really help in educating and sort of enforcing and, and, and sort of getting the employees to really take on responsibility um, as, as a collective team. Employee accountability really is key, and I find a lot of organizations that I work with today are, are driving the concept of employee accountability, employee ownership, um, right across all sorts of strategic change programs. So leveraging, um, I mean, your experience in in technology, in Silicon Valley, I mean, are we at the, the early phases, you know, as an industry right now when it comes to employee accountability? And what can we do um, to, to further uh, the adoption of, of frameworks? You mentioned ISMS, uh, and at BSI we're involved in an awful lot of, of uh, security frameworks, reviews, security management, uh, supporting organizations achieve various ISO accreditations, etc. But ultimately, if the employee in the organization isn't accountable and doesn't take ownership for quality, privacy, security, whatever it might be, you're not going to get anywhere. So how, how can we make that work and, and, uh, and where, where can we go from or how can we improve uh, the take up and, and the penetration almost of employee accountability and ownership? Yeah, so, so for mental security itself, even though we're still a young company, 
Um, given the type of customers that we have, these are global 2000 companies, uh, sometimes Fortune 50 banks. And so not only do we build products to help our customers be safe, we also want to make sure that as a company, we're uh, you know, adopting all the best practices. So Menlo itself is ISO 27001 certified. And this is, again, it's a framework where employees are trained on it and we have periodic reviews on it. And it's a combination of tool technology and processes, right? I mean, you can, you can empower in, you know, the employees and you can make them accountable, but as an organization, you also need to have the tools and technologies that allow those employees to now go and be accountable and, and take responsibility for it. Um, so I think every company is different um, in terms of the different ISO, they get certified, et cetera. But it's, end of the day, it's not certifications for certification's sake, right? It's, it's really around building a culture around the company where, where that framework is adopted and you know, on an ongoing basis, collectively, we, we talk about these things. At the same time, working with IT as, as a sort of a team, uh, we improve these tools and technology and processes to make sure that employees continue to be safe. I suppose one of the things you mentioned cybersecurity, right? Um, and for those who maybe aren't familiar with the term, it's effectively information security by a different name, right? The, 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 the name cyber, the word cyber brings with it all these fantastic, you know, George Orwell, 1984, um, hacker type uh, sort of images. Um, and uh, ultimately, it, it doesn't really change anything from before when, when we had information security. So. Like with, with, for instance, organizations choosing to move more into cloud products and more into a cloud style environment, you know, there are increased, you know, cyber threats and requirements mm -hmm. for improved security measures to counter these types of threats. But ultimately, what, what would you see as the most challenging aspects of that move into a cloud security model versus maybe the more traditional security model that we'd all be familiar with? Um, yeah, great question. So the pros are obvious. Um, with cloud security, right? It's about, it's scalability, it's total cost of ownership, it's flexibility, it's it's a bunch of stuff that you don't have to manage, it's somebody else's problem. And the somebody else's problem actually becomes the cons because from an organization perspective, you've now lost control and visibility. So a lot of the cloud native products, um, including Menlo, we go to a great, you know, great extent to one, educate and tell customers in terms of white papers and architecture diagrams and stuff like that. So the customers really get an understanding of how is this data being stored? Where is it stored? What are our own security processes in terms of how we handle all of that? And then the second one is from a product perspective, giving them a lot of visibility into what's happening behind the scenes. I think that becomes very, very important in terms of data storage and that takes us into GDPR and things like that. But ultimately it's, you know, the cons, for cloud security are loss of control and visibility, but I think that's also an opportunity to build cloud native products that give those controls and visibility to the customer so they don't necessarily feel like moving to the cloud somehow is something is being taken away from them. And it's interesting you mentioned control and visibility and, and GDPR in the same sentence. Uh, I work with an awful lot of organizations on their, their GDPR compliance, their, their global privacy program management. And time after time, what we find is third party risk management, oversight of vendors, you know, historically that they might have been on site or they might have been on site contractors. Increasingly, they are um, cloud providers, software as a service, infrastructure platform as a service, whatever. And that loss of control and visibility is really palpable when, when I start asking my clients, okay, 
who are we contracting with? What are they doing? And how are we getting assurances over that? Um, and that seems to be a real challenge, I think, at the moment, you know, looking at security practices and privacy practices of your third parties and being able to take back some of that control and take back some of that visibility and at least provide the board, you know, the audit committee uh, with a sense of some sort of assurance over the risks really that relate to um, outsourcing and engaging third party um, providers. I mean, is, is that something that you actively work on in Menlo to be able to educate your customers and provide them with sufficient assurance around the security controls rather than security gaps or vulnerabilities that might be in place through their engagement of you and your services? Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned third party security. Um, it also goes by the nomenclature of you know, supply chain security. So it's not enough uh, for our Menlo's customers to know that Menlo's product itself is safe and secure, but Menlo Security as a company and parties that we interact with are equally safe and secure. So uh, I'll give you some example, like any contractor or, or part-time employee that we hire, you know, they have to go through the background checks just like our full-time employees, right? And any third-party vendors that we interact with not necessarily from a technology product perspective, but it could be billing, it could be back office, it could be anything. We put them through the same type of ringer that our customers put us through it. And I think it's important to have so have that per, you know percolated security to make sure that there's really no weak link along along the way. Um, so we again, the ISO 2007-01 really helps us as a company to sort of put a very clean, nice framework around all of this. Kausik, today's disruptive technologies in the market and even just changes in how work practices are, such as mobility, they, they can really represent challenges when it comes to best practice cybersecurity. What is the best way to manage this and how does your product at Menlo uh, meet these and, and similar challenges? Uh, specific to mobility, um, I think we, we need to pause and you know talk about what Menlo is actually doing in the marketplace, right? So our mission is to eliminate web and email threats 100%. Uh, that's what we're trying to do, that's what we've been doing, and that's who we are. So when it, specifically when it comes to mobile, a lot of what we're hearing from customers is as it relates to keeping employees safe on mobile, um, the number one problem is phishing. Um, so because on the desktop, you've got visual cues to hover over links and look at where the email came from and what their email address and things like that. A small, smaller screen, screen space on the mobile devices makes it that much harder to identify spoofed emails and phishing links, et cetera. So for Menlo, from a, as a technology provider, we are largely agnostic to mobile versus desktop. So mobile is actually an opportunity for us, and we're very uniquely positioned to solving it. Um, and so really, from a mobile, um, you know, there's sort of two different versions of mobile that you hear in large, larger customers or enterprises. The first one is just managed uh, mobile devices where the company will offer employees the mobile devices and there's also what's called BYOD, bring your own device. Um, so both of those have sort of slightly different challenges, but Menlo is uniquely positioned to solving them. And in your opinion, Kaustik, to what extent are maybe the technology expectations of, of the younger workforce, the tech savvy, the millennials, you know, driving technology initiatives in organizations? Great question. One of the things that you see with the younger generation is uh, internet is like water. Uh, you know, I, I look at my own kids, um, they don't know of um, of a time or a place that doesn't have internet, right? Um, so having grown up in that sort of generation, um, surrounded by technology and the internet and the constant connectedness, 
when you walk into, let's say, a global 2000 or a Fortune 50, Fortune 100 companies, the Fortune 100 companies, they have a lot of restrictions, right? For the, again, for the, for the sake of security, everything is locked down. And so these younger generation, they're used to surfing, you know, listening to Spotify and Snapchat and all of that. And they come into work and use a desktop that's locked down. I mean, we have, we have, we know some, you know, banks that allow developers to only access 100 websites and the younger generation is going to go, what, what does that even mean? Why can't I get to the internet? Um, and so, yes, it's the, the tech savvy workforce that, that are coming in into the more traditional financial institutions where the security lockdowns are very, very severe um, are, are definitely getting frustrated by it, right? So there's this constant tension between if the IT, the security department allows access to a certain website, then there's a compliance breach or there's a security breach possibility. But at the same time, if they deny access to part of the internet or certain websites, then the younger generation and some of the employees are gonna go, that's not gonna work for me because you're not letting me do my job. Um, and so I think that's that's sort of a big tension that, that's in play uh, that we're seeing all the time. This again goes back to my original point, right? Security versus user experience. Um, so how do we really not have to compromise on either of those and give people what they want? I think that's very important. That, but that's exactly it. I mean, that that's a really cool question, almost a million dollar question, like for for the Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies, the big banks, insurance, tech, and um, you know, big tech multinationals who 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 really require um, uh, and need to recruit, uh, you know, young tech savvy workforces and um, people with those types of skills, but also people that have an expectation of technology that the resources uh, heretofore had never had. So proactively from a from a security perspective, as as the evangelist in the organization for technology and balancing technology with security, with user experience, how can organizations overcome those difficulties? How do you practically lock down technology yet enable the workforce? Uh, I mean, this is really Menlo's claim to fame in some ways, right? I think with this concept that we're pioneering, not entirely new, but it's internet isolation. And the idea is how do we allow users and employees to get to any part of the internet um, un untethered, unfettered, but at the same time, figure out a way to eliminate a sort of a guarantee of 100% security. And so we've sort of pioneered this virtual isolation concept where uh, at the end of the day, it's like our realization and our customer's realization is when you use a browser to connect to the internet, that's one of the primary sources of infection, be it phishing or malware or ransomware or what have you. So the unique idea here is instead of you running your own browser, what if Menlo could run a browser in the cloud and that browser serves on behalf of you, number one. Number two is figure out some technology where we can relay and mirror what the isolated browser sees back into your own browser. So as far as you're concerned, nothing really changes from an experience perspective. So that combination effectively creates an air gap uh, while at the same time allowing employees to go anywhere. And so I think that's something that's very, very appealing to our customers because for the first time they're realizing that they don't have to compromise on either. Interesting. I think you know, not being able to compromise on on either is is a huge selling point for organizations, and enables, I suppose, the the board to take assurance from the fact that well, 
practically we're implementing security controls, we're implementing security practices, we're sustaining them, but we're also enabling the workforce. And, and, and really that is critical. But Kaustik, maybe a, maybe a change of tack now. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear um, whether uh, you know CTOs and CISOs are, are turning to more emerging and, or sort of new technologies such as artificial intelligence, maybe machine learning, automation orchestration or, or RPA, robotic process automation? And, and if so, where um, it, where in the grand scheme of things do technologies like that um, allow you to improve your security posture? So security has always been funny business in my opinion, right? So um, more, most recently I was telling a story to somebody. If I gave you a bottle of water and I told you it was 99% water and I didn't know what the other 1% was, would you buy it? and let alone would you drink it? And everybody in the room went, of course not. Um, and yet, when we buy security products, we're proudly embracing vendors that say they're 99% secure. And so we keep throwing, you know, it's, it's, I think the spend is about $20 billion, growing at a clip of 10% year over year. So we're throwing so much money in, into this space and problem solving, and yet there's really no conclusive solution um, for, you know, it's, it's, we're not looking for a solution for everything, right? But any product that's focused on a specific aspect of security, if it can solve this 100%, that would be fantastic. And I think that's something that's been sorely lacking. And so a lot, if you look at the overhead, uh, including AI and data science and deep learning and all of that, there's so much investment going into that 1% chance of getting breached because it's not a question of if, if somebody's going to get breached, it's, it's about when they're going to get breached. So that's the mentality with which all of the enterprises are operating right now, right? They're, just, they're basically saying there's a 1% chance my 20 layers of security is not going to catch the next attack or whatever. So all the processes, all of the restrictions, all of the you know data mining and everything else is around that 1%. It's insane amount of spend. And it's because you've got a set of products that are not conclusive. And I think that has to change. It doesn't have to change for everything, but we can pick certain vectors of attack, maybe web, maybe email, uh, maybe some you know, other, other areas, and we need to figure out a way to solve things 100% so we can move on freeing up you know, the security operations team and so have you to focus on much more important things than, than just wasting time. But is that 1% really achievable? Do you think that there's a 100% secure um, environment out there that one day, or 100% state of, uh, uh, of security that one day we can all actually achieve? Um, so Menlo actually offers a 100% SLA for web related. You know, If you're browsing with Menlo, we actually have an SLA that's guaranteed to be 100%. So yes, it is possible because this, this key idea here that sort of sets Menlo apart from everybody else is, the 99% thing that I was kept talking about, it's about companies that are what we call detection companies, okay? And so their mission in life is to somehow figure out whether something is good or bad and then allow or block it. So for example, there are, te there are technologies and there's security products that if you go to a website, they would do all kinds of crazy innovative things to see if that website is good. And if they decide it's good, they'll let you go. If they decide it's bad, they will block you. But the problem is that detection is never conclusive. There's always a chance you're going to get a false positive or a false, false negative. This concept of isolation basically says we're not going to trust anything. Everything is bad. So we're not going to have you ever come into contact with the website. And yet we're going to make sure that the browsing aspect of it looks native. And I think that's the reason 
um, we have this 100% SLA because we're secure by architecture, not because not secure because we have a better detection technology. So if you could expand that then to the entire security posture of an organization, you'd be quids in, I suppose, really. It'd be it'd solve all the uh, the security problems, all of the security issues that organizations would face, except you know, you've the luxury maybe of looking at it from one particular point, the user browsing the internet. Um, yeah, so I think that, that was Menlo's key insight, right? Which is if you look at if you look at all the possible ways a company is gonna get breached, and if you look at all the different security issues. There are things where they might be running, you know, uh, ser servers that are running antiquated software, which could be breached. Okay, there's that area. There's inside threats, you know, some rogue employee trying to do something crazy. And then, if you look at all of those, if you put them all in a bucket. Ninety-nine percent of the time, it's web and email. It's it's employees went to some random website, they downloaded a PDF, and it was ransomware. They got infected, or maybe they clicked on a link, which then which took them to a website that looked like their favorite bank and they gave away their credentials, right? So I think Menlo's key insight is 99% of, of the time, web and email are the primary conduits for infection. So really what we're saying is, look, there is that other 1% with USB sticks and rogue employees and all of that stuff. We gotta have a different way of solving it and Menlo's not gonna necessarily solve that problem right now, but our entire focus is web and email as problem areas, let's remove it. And that's what we've been working on. And Kelsey, like having resilience capabilities uh, in place, whether it's through uh, something like the um, uh, the isolation software that you sell, or to even just resilience capabilities in terms of staff um, removing single points of failure in your network infrastructure, in your supply chain. They're not always the easiest to maybe quantify um, in terms of budget or, or demonstrate value until something goes wrong. How how can a CTO uh, educate the wider C-suite on the importance of investing in um, capabilities in security controls that that, that detect uh, and allow you to respond to to incidents as they happen and as they arise in that in that one percent of situations that you mentioned. I'm going to try to connect the few dots in the conversation we've been having so far. Right, I think the first one, you know, we started the conversation with about the human element being the weakest link, and. I, and I think that's we keep coming back to it where you can train the employees all they want, but if they get an email with the link that said they won this amazing cruise award, chances are they're gonna fall for it. And the social media component of it where we all live out our lives in public, makes it that much easier. Like if I go to Instagram and somehow I'm getting connected to you, Connor, and I find that you went on this amazing vacation, and if I send you an email, something very contextual about the vacation the very next day, chances are you're gonna click on it because I'm playing to the human psyche here, right? And so I think, like, how do we make sure that at the end of the day, employees can do their job and do it safe and secure and not really involve them in making a security decision every single click, every single visit to a website? I think that's very key. I think that's how we're going to make things more resilient by having an environment where employees feel comfortable going anywhere, fully knowing that there's some technology magic that's working behind the scenes that's going to keep them safe and secure. I think that's pretty key. And so this whole concept is called a zero trust internet. And the idea is that you can't really trust anything on the internet, whether uh, a link that you clicked on, a website that you went to, a document that you downloaded from somewhere. So by creating this, you know, sort of a error gap and a barrier between you and the internet, 
I think we can improve the resiliency dramatically. That's really interesting. I, I would uh, I liken the, what you've just said, um, Kausik, to the, how I approach the concept of privacy. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, I, I do an awful lot of work with organizations around privacy controls, privacy frameworks, privacy program management. And I, I tend to uh, wear a, a tin hat when I'm trying to evangelize the concepts that sit behind privacy, uh, privacy by design, you know, um, moving things left in terms of even the, the, more, the more radical concepts relating to DevSecOps and, and, and taking a much more considered approach of, as you mentioned, the zero trust internet, don't trust anything. How do we establish um, an environment that our, our employees our trained employees can operate within with the confidence to know um, uh, and, and in the comfort that actually the tools around them, the environment they're operating within actually does an awful lot of uh, the mitigation um, that, that we need in order to build a resilient organization. And I, I, I find that really, really, really interesting, Kausik. Um, Taking maybe a, a look forward then. So we're at this position now in, in, in late 2019, where we have evolving regulatory requirements globally. We've got cyber on the agenda um, uh, at government, at, at, uh, at sea level. Um, it, it, it's a big buzz, privacy, security, um, and, and how do we train and, and maintain an, an, an effective employee? And yes, it's all coming back to the employee, but ultimately, how do you see maybe the role of the CTO evolving in that sort of mix of regulation, government oversight, um, board level pressure to deliver value and to, to deliver profit margins and maintain security. And, and in that sort of evolution over the, you know, maybe the next three to five years, what sort of new challenges do you think you might face? And, and, and uh, what, what, what sort of, how will you approach those difficulties? So, um, it's a lot of topics, so let me see if I can try to address a couple of those. Um, I think the future is in the cloud. I think that much is very clear. Everybody's moving to the cloud because of the, all the reasons that we talked about before. Now, as part of moving to the cloud, now if you think about you know, a CISO trying to explain to the CIO or the board members why their investment is right, board is basically looking at, okay, you know what, you're spending X number of dollars on security, and did you actually solve anything? Like if you can say that when you implement a CRM or something like that, you can say, yes, I've solved this problem. But when it comes to security, it's always been insurance because you just don't know. You're spending all this money. Uh, somebody asks you, are you, gonna, are you safe? And you're gonna go, well, we put all these technologies, right? You can't really answer that question, are you safe? And I think that needs to change. We need to get back to selling water bottles filled with 100% water, um, you know, in terms of security products and so on. So the combination of cloud, the zero trust internet, I think that's the future. And in there, the security needs to be an integral part of that journey. You can't do cloud transformation without something like an isolation, um, internet isolation or zero trust internet, because all of a sudden you're going from completely controlling everything to you have no idea what's where, people are moving data all over the place and uh, there's just a lot of risk associated with it. So from a really, Technology perspective and addressing the board perspective, I think we just need to continue to get to a point where things can be conclusive. So when they say, are you safe? Um, you, you spend X million dollars on this product or this technology, are you safe? Uh, you have to be able to say yes for these set of things, 
we've solved this problem so that we can move on to other things. And, and as a CTO then, Kelsey, those other things, what, what do you want those other things to be and what do they look like to you? So the, the other things, I think, you know, from, again, I, I'll specifically speak to just my own, uh, I guess, role and responsibility. Um, so a lot of my role and responsibility, you know, if I'm looking at the next four or five years, is really around delivering that compelling solution to our customers that, that gets the zero trust internet, enables them to transform to the cloud and feel confident that they're not going to lose security by going into the cloud. It's about making sure that we continue to deliver products that are in the forefront of solving security, but at the same time, making sure that the users of our platform have no idea that they're using us. Like how do you remain sort of in the background, transparently enabling them to do their jobs much better without really compromising on security, right? So I think those two pillars for Menlo and my own role and thinking about all the different things that we're doing for the next five years, I think those become very, very powerful. We started off five, six years ago with the mission of solving web and email as problem child, problem children. Um, so really continue to deliver on that mission and vision. Um, given the, the, the topic of the podcast series that we're running here in BSI is strengthening resilience in a cloud first world. Um, what really, in your opinion, um, or how rather, in your opinion, can organizations the clients that you sell to, uh, the clients that we support, um, Menlo itself, uh, BSI itself, how do we become more resilient against all the myriad of security risks that face organizations today? Um, it's, it's similar, it's gonna be similar to my answer before, right? Which is we, we need to, so if you talk to any security practitioner and you say we're 100% secure, they're gonna laugh. Uh, they're going to be a lot of shaking my head and rolling eyes and everything else. But I think we need to be able to parse this 100% security into these buckets of solvable problems where we can have conclusive solutions for them. Um, again, the example is the government story that I narrated before, where if you unplug the internet and you have a separate computer for the internet, your work computer is not going to get compromised. So that's 100% safe. Yes, it comes with user experience and lots of user friction, but it is 100% safe. If USB sticks are the primary source of infection for your for your PC and employees are bringing all kinds of stuff on the USB, there are solutions that completely, you know, block USB uh, on, on, on those employee computers. And so there are ways to solve those problems. So we can actually say that there's classes of security problems that are solvable in a conclusive manner. So I think we need to start breaking these things down into buckets of problems that we can have conclusive solutions for. And I think that's how we're gonna get resilient, not by throwing more and more layers of security, more and more sort of con control mechanisms where employees are getting frustrated every single day coming to the job. And then Kausik, my final question really relates to the unknown. So um, having the having uh, conclusive um, uh, tools and conclusive products in place and conclusive solutions, as you say, to to sort of achieve that 100 percent um, security threshold uh, is great. But in terms of being able to react to the, the unknown disruptors, whether that's new technology, new entrants, maybe to the market, you know, innovation that might come from your own engineering teams and not least regulatory changes or rather the changing political landscape that we see in today's world i mean how can how can we park a little bit of 
space and capacity in terms to be, of us being able to react to those types of threats and those types of, um, of challenges. Yeah, so the fact that you mentioned unknown essentially means that you're thinking about a technology that can somehow differentiate between what's known and what's not known. And this is a classic detection trap because the moment you try to identify whether something is good or bad, known or unknown, the chances are you're gonna miss. So this whole concept of internet isolation, zero trust, internet, all of those things, basically are saying, let's stop playing the detection game. Let's just assume everything is bad. Whether it's known, whether it's not known, let's, let's not really concern ourselves about that. And when you, when you think about it that way, um, then all of a sudden, there, you know, if there's a new type of attack that comes in, you already future-proofed yourself from a product perspective. Most security products in the last 20 years, they were built to solve a certain problem when the product was launched, when the company was launched. Things like Sandbox and AV are all sort of manifestations of those. There was a problem in the market space and there's, certain, there's a certain class of threats. So somebody built X number of products to solve that problem. Three years went by and all of a sudden the attack landscape changed. Now you need a new set of products. At the customers that we talk to, they're tired of that, right? They, they, they want to deploy something that has a much, much longer shelf life without really having to deal with all of those things. So they want their investment to have very strong returns over a longer period of time. And in some ways that also simplifies their security stack. So instead of 30 layers of 99% you know, detection technology, they're looking for maybe three or four of 100% detection technology. So really going back to answering a question, the known versus unknown is a very classic detection sort of mindset, if you will. Um, and that's how we've all been trained in the last 20 years. And so we're saying there is a new way that's called isolation uh, that really assumes everything is bad. I, I, I love I love that concept and, 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 and it brings with it its own uh, its own sort of um, uh, visual manifestation in my head, at least of uh, of the man in the tinfoil hat saying everything is bad. So we, we trust nobody. Um, we have got investment in the right places in terms of detection technology so that regardless of the disruptive forces that might exist that might happen and might occur that might evolve and these unknowns regardless of what they might be we can we can uh, uh, we can claim and demonstrate that we are already in fact resilient enough um uh, in the face of of those dangers as they might arise yeah i mean the the simple story that i will share with you one of our customers you know, pre-Menlo, they were they used to investigate about 1,000 web-related incidents um, every month, um, and some of these incidents, I'm saying investigate because they're not necessarily a breach. Maybe some user went to some website, and you know, they had to go in there and figure out if that website was bad. In which case, you have to take the you know user's computer away. Post-Menlo, with isolation, it, they don't really care anymore because there are no web-related incidents. That's that's the kind of things I think we as technology providers really need to strive for, those conclusive those solutions. Um, Kausik, I, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today on, on the podcast. Um, our guest uh, today was Kausik Kuraswamy, the CTO at Menlo. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you uh, today, Kausik. I, I really do think um, some of the insights there um, were uh, were really, really interesting. And I think our listeners will, will find them really engaging and insightful. So um, a big thank you from me and from everybody here at BSI to Kausik Kuraswamy, the CTO at Menlo, for joining us uh, uh, today. Thanks, Connor.